Hi, good morning, everybody. Happy belated Thanksgiving. He's still full from turkey. I didn't have turkey, so I'm fine. All right. Um, before we get started, this is probably the most important thing. Uh, the last few times I preached, I completely forgot about this, the birthdays. <laughs> so um, we have Lana Bogo. Are you related to Jackie? Is this Jackie's sister or something? Happy birthday to her. And we, got, we have, I'm going to say this wrong, Hassel, Rebecca Martin. Who, who is that? Happy birthday to her. Yes. Woo. Normally, this is a long list, but this is all we have for the week. So there you go. So today, the title of our message is The Glory of God. And um, we're going we're gonna to read Exodus 11 to 12. This is going to be long, so don't fall asleep. But we need to read through it so that we have a good context before we get to work trying to understand what, what um, the Scripture says about God and eventually what it will say about us. Okay, so now, um, you know, just try to stay awake. We're going to read a long chunk of scripture. Okay. So we're reading selected verses from Exodus chapter 11 and 12. If you have your Bibles, you can follow with me, but I'm going to be skipping. So just try to read the screen. The font is kind of small. But <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Or just listen to my nice uh, bedroom voice. <laughs> All, right. Um, all right. We will read this slowly and carefully. Um, try to really put yourselves there. You know, God is talking a lot in these verses. Let's really try to imagine what he's saying. Try to, you know, chew on it. All right. Here we go. Now the Lord had said to Moses... I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. So the Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people. And Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. So Moses goes to Pharaoh and relays the message. About midnight, I will go through Egypt. Let's read that again. That's kind of heavy there. God says, about midnight, I myself will go through Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel all these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, 
go, and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. The Lord said, then said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. At midnight, the Lord struck down the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock swell. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go and worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go, and also bless me. Now, the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, to this very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt. On this night, all the Israelites are going to keep vigil to honor the Lord for generations to come. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for for your word, and thank you for who you are. Lord, none of us are worthy to come here today, to come to you, to come sit in front of you and, and to hear from you, Lord. You shouldn't be speaking to us, Lord. We're, we're filthy, Lord. We're, we are sinful people. But, Lord, we humbly come to you because we need you, Lord. We need to hear from you. and We just need you, period. Lord. We cannot exist without you. Father, I humbly pray for today. I humbly pray for myself, for the scripture that we just read. Lord, will you just speak to all of us, Lord? We need to hear from you. We need to understand you. We need to know who you are. And, Lord, we need to change Speak to all of us this morning, Father. In Jesus' name, we humbly pray. Amen. Well, that was a cheerful portion of Scripture, wasn't it? 
a lot of death, a lot of uh, striking down. So today, our message is about the glory of God. Um, so we will dissect the, the chapters. We're just going to do an overview, overview. We're not going to do verse by verse, unless you guys want to be here for five more months to hang out and study Hebrew. Um, we're just going to look at the main theme of these chapters. We're going to look at the Passover, what it is, right? What is the Passover? What was that stuff we all just read? And we're going to talk about the Passover lamb, right? It's pretty significant in the chapters, almost a focal point. And then we're going to talk about the lamb of God. And finally, we're going to talk about what all of this means for us. How does this apply to us? Okay, so let's get started. Let's read Isaiah 46.10. Declaring, read with me, guys, come on, this is short. It's not going to be a few pages. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. So who's speaking here? It's God, right? What does God say? Well, he's basically saying, what I want to do, I do. And I declare things that will happen before they happen. And they happen because I want them to happen. Basically, that's what he's saying. He's saying what Bien discovered about him last time we were in Exodus. Uh, he's saying that he's sovereign, right? God is sovereign. I can do whatever the heck I want, and there's nothing you can do about it, right? That's what God is saying here. Um, actually, that's how it plays out in the story of the Israelites. Well, we don't need to read Genesis here. But in Genesis 15, when... When God makes his covenant with, um, with Abraham, he, he, tells the, he tells him the things that we are reading about now in Exodus. He tells him that, you know, your people will become great, but they will become slaves. And then after 400 years, they will be free. That's what he says here. And we were just reading that story of how God freed Israel. Um, what is... What is the issue about the sovereignty of God? Does that offend you guys? No? It was, I'm, it's only me. <laughs> no, when I first, when I was a younger Christian, and I first started reading about how God is sovereign, F. Rahim started reading about that, and his mind was blown. Um, it bothered me, right? Because it's, you know, growing up, I always thought that I had free will, that I was the captain of my ship, I can do whatever I want, yada, yada, yada. All of a sudden, I read the Bible, and it says there, oh, no, it, you, you don't do what you want. You, God does what he wants. You're just living in his world. And that sort of offended my sinful nature, right? It felt uncomfortable to read, oh, God does whatever he wants, and I'm just a pawn, right? Well, what we're learning is that although God is sovereign, our choices are still our choices, and we are, we are accountable for those choices. The big issue, though, is the sovereignty of God and his glory. Whenever we hear about those two things, 
that God is sovereign and everything he does is for his glory, that creates a tension, especially if you're going to start talking to people who, don't, who aren't Christians and you're going to start, you, you can't, you can't front load your conversations with non-believers with this topic, by the way. Try to avoid that. But, um, you know, the, the tension exists in the idea that, that God is sovereign and that he does things for his glory. That's kind of hard to understand, right? So what we want to do this morning through Exodus chapters 11 and 12 is to try to understand, well, what is God's glory, right? What, you know, if, if, if it's so important that all of God's sovereign power is geared towards glorifying himself, then what is God's glory? What does it look like? What does it mean for us? I think as we study chapters 11 and 12 of Exodus, we get a little glimpse of what God's glory is, and it should affect us and haunt us. You know, last night when I was wrapping up my slides, when I was wrapping up my slides for, for, for this message, I was really affected by all the stuff I was reading. Um, I had to go outside for a walk, but then it was too cold, so I had to hurry back in. Um, this is heavy stuff, and hopefully, by God's grace, we get to understand a little bit more about him. Okay? Let's get hopping. So let's talk about the Passover. Let's read verse 12 of chapter 12. On that same night, read with me, guys. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So the Passover is when God comes down and executes a kind of preliminary judgment on the earth. It's a precursor to a bigger judgment that is to come. Right? It is the event that serves as the catalyst, as my note says, for the exodus. Right? It's what sets the exodus off. Right? So what is it? God comes down and he basically takes the lives of all the firstborn of every living thing in Egypt, animals included. So, and we'll get back to that later. It's a pretty... It's a pretty heavy act that God does. What for? To free the Israelites, right? To free them to do what? To worship. Right? That was what Moses kept saying every time he went to Pharaoh. Please release the people so that we may go and worship. What? Right? Go leave your, your, the country and worship our God. Um, so what does that tell us, right? What's the, what does that tell us? Worship is very costly. To come here, to come before God, is not cheap. It's not free, right? Um, 
you know, there, there were other nine plagues, and those plagues had to do with God dismantling Pharaoh's belief system and the belief system of the Egyptians. You know, if I were God, I could have stopped at number nine, right? I was con- if I'm controlling everything, I could have stopped at nine. Darkness is pretty cool, right? It's scary, it's dark. Okay, they're going to let the people go now. Or maybe stop at seven. Fiery hail. You guys ever seen hail? You ever been hit by hail? No, right? Well, fiery hail. That's kind of scary. You see, it's like raining fire. He just stopped there. But God, in his sovereignty, decided to go for number 10, the death of the firstborn. So that what? His people will be free to go and worship him. Right? So God sort of, in his sovereignty, sets the terms for worship, for us to be able to enjoy him, for us to come to him and talk to him and then enjoy him fully. Now, I don't think the worship here, by the way, side note, the worship here is not ritual worship. It's not just about going to church. When they say worship, if you remember our old uh, messages that we had together, Worship is really experiencing something and giving it value, giving it ultimate value. It's like, I don't know, for sports fans, um, you know, when you find, a, like Tito Gil, for example, if you find a basketball team, you ascribe some value to them, and they in turn give you value, right? You enjoy the team. You know, you post on Facebook about the team. Tell everyone about the new guy playing for the team. And when they win, you also win. That's sort of what real worship is like. It's not just showing up. It's really finding worth and beauty in something. Right? And so to really have that with God, to really get to experience him and to say, God is amazing. God is beautiful. God is magnificent. For us to experience him, It comes at a cost. And God sets those terms clearly in Exodus. For you to be free, you know, it's not enough that water turns to blood. It's not enough that there are frogs. Somebody has to die. Right? So what happens in Exodus is, is there a song, a Christian song that, entitled Love Comes Down. Is there something like that? Is there? There is, right? Well, here, wrath comes down. God's wrath comes down. What happens again in the Passover is God sort of gives us a light version of his judgment on the earth. No one is safe. Um, were the Israelites safe? Yes, because of the blood of the lamb. But if there was no blood, let's say, you know, if I was an Israelite and I was kind of lazy and I ate the lamb, but I forgot to sprinkle the blood, what would happen to me? I'd be dead. If I didn't paint the, my doorposts with blood, I forgot somehow I was in the food coma, I ate the lamb, it was good. 
oh, I'll do it later. I'll we won't wake up, right? There's no Adrian tomorrow because I'm the firstborn. I'm dead, all right? There is really, apart from the blood, the sign, the symbol of the blood, there was no distinction from between the Egyptians and the Israelites. The only thing that made a distinction was the blood on their doorposts. If God passed through your house, passed by your house, and didn't see blood on the doorpost, he would execute the first, all the firstborn in that house. Do you get it? Right? No one was worthy of God in Egypt. And that speaks to the condition of the entire world today. If God came down full glory, full glory, we'd all be dead. No one would be safe. Um, I think John Piper once said, uh, apart from Jesus, God is dangerous. Right? God is dangerous. So no one was worthy. It's a wrath. God comes down, executes a prelim, preliminary form of judgment, and no one was worthy, really. No one was safe. But some people were spared. God relented because of the blood of the lamb. So the Passover lamb, the blood of the Passover lamb, gave them temporary safety. Let's read the verse here. Each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. The animals you choose must be year old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. All the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. So the sign of the blood on the doorpost kept them safe from God's judgment, from God's wrath. Um, this begins to you know, teach us about this theological concept of atonement. Substitutionary atonement, uh, big words. But all that's saying is, in God's economy, for us to be cleansed of sin or to be safe from God's wrath against imperfection, somebody has to take our place. And that was instituted here. And it's alluded to in the entirety of the Old Testament, even the New Testament. Um, what happens here, too, when we read the verse, is that God is making his people conscious of the cost of being safe, right? Of the cost of worship. God was making them conscious. So what God institutes here is you basically you take your best lamb and you take extra good care of it for a number of days until you slaughter it. Right? Have you seen lambs? They're cute, right? So I remember I'm not I'm not an animal lover. I you know I I used to find dogs annoying. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. They just poop and they're terrible, smell bad. Until Doki and I, my wife, had to take care of a friend's dog. We took care of uh, a small Pomeranian. Took care of her for three weeks. And then we had to give her back to the owner. And I was genuinely sad. <laughs> it was, oh, I miss her. It's just, you come home and, 
and you know the little dog comes up to you and just wants your attention. I don't know if the lambs are the same way, but <laughs> but the point is you have to take care of the lamb. You have to take care of the lamb, and you have to sort of identify with it. I think in the ritual was you put your before you kill the lamb, you put your hand on his forehead, you identify with it, and then you slit the throat. Um, God here gives him a glimpse of since since the Passover is about a temporary judgment. God is giving us a foreshadowing of what will of what it will take for us to be safe from final judgment. Are you tracking with me? So here's a picture of uh I think I'm not sure, but I think in Israel they they don't allow the sacrifice anymore of lambs on Passover. And uh, there's a, I stumbled on this website of a Jewish, a Jewish group who wants to bring back the ancient sacrifice, the, the way they did the sacrificial rituals. That's their group. And here they are carrying the lamb they've taken care of, right? Um, just this picture what I was describing earlier makes it more just palpable how if we slow down, stop, and think about it, all these rituals in the Old Testament and everything we just read, this is all heavy stuff, right? This is pretty brutal. You take care of a lamb, and then now you have to slit its throat for you to be safe. Now, the story, the, the overall narrative of Scripture, what this is leading to, when you begin to understand it more, what this is leading to becomes more and more impactful, I would say, more haunting. I think that's the word I would use. When I was reading this stuff last night and I was praying, I was haunted by this the idea of what this was leading to. And this is leading to the Lamb of God, right? This is a title, this is a name specific to Jesus, the Lamb of God. Um, in First John, John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, if you were tracking with me earlier, and yes, I was talking about the Passover Lamb, and what it meant to take care of it, and then to kill it, to sprinkle its blood. And then come, here comes Jesus. It paints a glimpse of how hard it must have been for God to do this. I don't know how hard it was, but you know, I, I lost my daughter beginning of this year. I wanted her to live. You know, my, my daughter was sick and she passed away. I wanted her to live. And I'm a sinful person, but I wanted my own daughter, my firstborn, to live. So how does it feel for God to send his son? Now, Jesus just becoming man, Jesus going from his 
immortal place, his godhood, turning into one of us, that's already pretty wild. But what he came to do is even more radical, even more crazy. We jump very quickly to Jesus, right, from Exodus. Um, But there is a principle that Jesus gives us in Luke about Scripture. Um, That Scripture all pertains to Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament up to Revelation is about Jesus. He says it here in Luke chapter 24. Um, So this is the road to Emmaus. He was walking with two disciples, and he's disguised. And they're, you know, this is just after Jesus um, was on the cross. And the two guys were sad and depressed because Jesus died, and they thought, oh, Jesus is gone, and, you know, we don't have any hope anymore, blah, blah, blah. And Jesus shows up and walks alongside them, and, and he te- basically starts a conversation with two, these two guys in disguise. And then he tells them, you know, how foolish you are because they were depressed, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So he gave them a theology class as they were walking down this road. He illuminated for them passages of scripture. And if we go back to Exodus... You know, the whole thing wasn't just about the people of Israel becoming free. God created a play where he would begin to help us understand what he was about to do for all of us, right? At the Passover, Jesus celebrates Passover with his his disciples before he goes and dies. And um, some, I was reading about this. Some people argue about this because they were arguing whether or not there was a lamb in the Passover that Jesus had. It's pretty funny how people get nerdy with theology. But So there's arguments here and there, blah, blah, blah. Was there a lamb or was there no lamb? The point of Luke, the narrative of the Gospels, wasn't... A, I'm pretty sure there was probably a lamb because when Jesus does things, when he does religious ceremonies and rituals, he does them perfectly. So there was probably a lamb. That's just my two cents. But the lamb, really, if you start reading through the Gospels, there was no longer any mention of a Passover lamb at the Passover Jesus had with his disciples. What was the point the writers were trying to make? The focus became on became about Jesus. They didn't talk about the lamb anymore because the real lamb, the true lamb, was there. It was Jesus. So they just, if we read through Luke here, he took the bread and gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after the supper, he took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, 
which is poured out for you, right? Narratively, the focus became about Jesus because Jesus is the true Passover lamb. Where the Passover lamb in Exodus provided temporary safety from God's judgment, Jesus would come and provide a permanent salvation for all of us. Here's a question that was pretty crazy. Who sacrificed Jesus? Was it the Romans? No. Was it the Jews? No. Remember, God is sovereign. And if we go back to Exodus, he designed everything so that everything would culminate in the 10th plague. Right? God, in his sovereignty, orchestrated all the events so that the 10th plague would happen. Who went down for the 10th plague to execute the firstborn? God, right? It was God. Here he says it. About midnight, I will go. Some translations say the angel of the Lord came. So whenever you, whenever you read in certain translations in the Old Testament, when you read the angel of the Lord, I believe the actual grammar in Hebrew is the angel who is the Lord. So God would come down in the Old Testament every now and then. Theologians call this a theophany, so the appearance of God in a lesser form. He would come down every now and then and do things, appear to people, talk to people. This is not the full glory of God, right? God cannot appear 100% because everyone would die if he does that. So that night, God comes down and he executes all of the firstborn. So when it came to the true Passover lamb, who did it? It wasn't the Jews. It wasn't the Romans. It wasn't us. You know, some people really like to make this romantic. Oh, if I were there, I would have, I would have murdered Jesus too. It's us. We did it. It wasn't us. It was God right? It was his good pleasure to see his son suffer, right? The colored painting here is actually a depiction of Abraham. You remember this scene from the life of Abraham? When Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac, and then God sends an angel, tells him to stop, stop, stop. I now see you're, you're committed Well, that's exactly what God does. When Jesus was on the cross, darkness fell on the land. This was not like darkness like right now. It's kind of gloomy. This was pitch black darkness. And then that's when God comes down again, the entirety of his wrath this time. In Exodus, it was just a brief you know, a little taste of what he was about to do to sinners. This time, when Jesus was on the cross, this was the full wrath of God coming down. And who took all of the wrath? Jesus. Jesus. So God is sovereign, right? And God, God is sovereign, and his main concern is his glory, 
Everything that he does is for his glory, to showcase his glory, right? What is the greatest showcase of God's glory? Jesus on the cross. So whenever we hear about God and his glory and we feel bad about it, it just only means we don't really know him. Right? Whenever God wants to glorify himself, whenever he glorifies himself, there is always good in it for us. Always. You know, God glorifies himself by becoming humble, by becoming nothing. And that is different from us. See, when we glorify ourselves, it's at the expense of another person. When God does it, it's totally different. So what does this mean for us? Right? If God is sovereign and he, you know, his, his glory is Jesus on the cross, what does this mean for us? Well, let's talk about worship first. We're here, we're all worshiping this Sunday, right? But worship is really our lives. And we're supposed to, when, when we really meet Jesus, our lives are supposed to change. We're supposed to become different. And, you know, it's true. It's supposed to be different because if, if we really see what, what Jesus did, we can't help but be affected by it. We're supposed to change. The question here is, when we worship God, are we worshiping him or are we in love with him because of what he can do for us? Or are we in love with him for who he is? This is a profound question that we need to keep asking ourselves every day for the rest of our lives, individually, in our devotional time, and together in our discipleship and accountability groups. Are we in love with Jesus for who he is? Or are we in love with him for the stuff that we can get out of him? Pharaoh, in several instances in the whole plague narrative, he, would, he becomes a believer several times. A believer, quote, unquote. He would say, oh, you're, you know, your God is good. I'm going to let you go. And then eventually he'll, he'll change his mind and go back and... Pharaoh and his system of belief, the gods he worshipped, the idols he created, they all, all his idols had to do with stuff that he wanted for himself and for his country. Like each god represented some sort of prosperity that they wanted, right? The god of the Nile, the Nile gave them crops, nutrition for every god that he created had to do with stuff that he wanted for himself. Right? But that's not us. We're Christians. That's not true, necessarily. Many times we distort God, we distort Jesus, so that he becomes this genie that provides us with the stuff that we want. Right? People even make theology out of it. It's called the prosperity gospel. Right? People say, if you have faith, God will do whatever you want. He's not sovereign anymore. It's like fate. It's like a gun that you point to Jesus and then... Jesus, give me what I want, and I'll shoot you with my faith gun, right? 
Some people do that. When we do that, when we come up with stuff like that, you know, we're, we're creating a distorted image of Jesus, and we don't love him. We love a version of him that we created in our minds. Right? So that's why we go back to the cross. That's why we go back to this idea that Jesus is the Passover lamb, so that we fall in love with him for who he is. And who he is is revealed fully on the cross. God is both just and merciful. God is gracious, but he will not spare sin. So because of the cross, when when God one day passes judgment on all of us, he will be right. He will have the right to do it because he sent his son on the cross. In the first place, nobody should be saved anyway. Right? I, am a, I work as an architect, architectural designer, and whenever something I do is terrible, I just throw away the sketch when I don't like it. I just start over. Oh this, oh, this is nasty. I throw it away. But God chose not to throw us away. So that in and of itself is already an act of grace. Right? There should be no Adrian here right now. There should be no Ephraim right there. None of us should be here now, right? But God wanted to showcase his glory in the unfolding of history. God's glory, as revealed on the cross, also means that we can give up chasing after small glories. Every day we get up, we go to work, we do what we do, because, let's be honest, we want... We want glory, right? I go to work not only just to make money, but I want to be the best at work, secretly. And then I was talking to Felicia last night about it. She, she, was actually, she gave her testimony a few weeks ago when Tito Albert was here. We were talking about this weird idea we Christians have of glory. Sometimes... We want to pursue our glory, and we put a Christian garment on top of it. We say, oh, I'm doing this for God's glory. I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm playing guitar for God's glory, blah, blah, blah. When we, the truth is, many times we do it for our glory. When we understand the glory of God, then we can stop doing that. Because in the end... What God wants, and he says this explicitly in Scripture, he wants to glorify us. That's crazy. He wants to justify us, and then he wants to glorify us in the end with him. Oh, yeah, all of you, you will share in my glory one day. That's insane. Why would God share that with me? Right? I see Lance over here nodding. <laughs> And I remember we had a conversation before about, I think we were doing a Bible study on, on God's covenant with, with man. And he said something to the effect of why would, he was, you know, I think he was deeply moved and was about to cry. <laughs> and uh, he said something like he couldn't fathom why God would covenant with man. He couldn't understand it. He was saying, it's like me create a covenant with a dog. I would, dog, I will die for you. It doesn't make sense. But God does it. 
So one day there awaits for us glory with Jesus. So now we're free to be humble. Right? We're supposed to be the people most defined by humility. Right? We can be free from chasing glory. We can just live ordinary lives and be fine. Because one day we'll, we'll share in the glory that we can never understand. And lastly, right, Jesus on the cross, God's glory displayed on the cross means one day we'll have dinner with Jesus. All right, dinner with Jesus. What do you mean, Adrian? This is because we had just had Thanksgiving, and uh, Thanksgiving is also haunting me. I'm just kidding. Uh, Thanksgiving. Um, what's your Thanksgiving fun? You enjoy it? Was it awkward with certain family members? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, you know, Uncle so-and-so here, he's weird. Um, you know, think of, I only mentioned Thanksgiving. Some Thanksgivings are bad, let's be honest. But there are, every once in a while, family meals that are great. Just really great, right? And you just wish that the night would never end. You're just laughing, you're having a good time, you're all, it's good. When it stops, it's depressing, right? Because then you try to do another dinner like that, and then it's, it's not the same. It's not the same as last time. Maybe we need more wine or something. <laughs> all of those dinners, when we sit down together, those fleeting, really you know, amazing dinners with family, and you're all laughing and having a good time. They all point to a meal that we're going to have someday. Jesus says in the Passover, it was his last dinner with his friends. He said, I'm not going to drink wine or eat bread until I eat with all of you again. Until that day comes. Can you imagine Jesus is fasting? He's not having dinner until we are all with him again. So the Passover is a meal that families, you know, in, in Israel, Jewish families share together. It says in Exodus, they share it because God kept watch over them. And then they stay up all night because to remember. We have communion as a spiritual discipline to remember what God has done for us. We not only remember, but we also look forward to having dinner with Jesus. One day we'll be sitting there together. It's going to be great. Now, the thing is, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you might not be at that dinner. You know, more for me. But uh, <laughs> So, I implore you today, if you're not sure if you have a relationship with Jesus, at home later, not now, just sit down away from everyone else and just talk to him. Ask him to be your Lord and your Savior. He'll do it if you're sincere. Right? He'll do it. And for us who are believers already, um, our tendency is to forget Jesus. All our spiritual disciplines, accountability, all that stuff, 
God designed that. God designed discipleship groups so that we remind each other of the greatness of the Lamb of God. So we forget, right? Whenever in our accountability groups, in our discipleship groups, whenever somebody is doing something that's wrong, it only means that that person has forgotten Jesus or don't know Jesus that well. So let's make it a point together as a community to remember, help each other remember Jesus and what he's done. So for our discussion today, I have two questions. And, okay, the first one is, do you remember when you first fell in love with Jesus? When you first met Jesus? Not, you know, fell in love with the stuff we can do, but really tasted the, the real Jesus. Can you share that with your group if you have a story like that? Um, and the second question is, so from when you first met Jesus, is the joy from that moment still present in your life today? Yes or no, right? How can your discipleship community help you rekindle that fire? So discuss that together. Those are then strategies that you can apply in your small groups. So that is our message for this morning. God is sovereign and seeks out his glory all the time. But his glory is Jesus, and that makes it okay. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, for today, and thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for, Lord, from the bottom of our hearts, thank you for, for sending your son. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming down and choosing to be the lamb for us, Lord who takes away our sin. Lord, we will never fully understand it. None of us here are deserving, Lord. We're all evil here. No one here is really good. But Lord, you've chosen to, to call us to yourself, to draw us to yourself. Lord, the fact that this Sunday we're talking about you, we're talking about what you've done on the cross, is you already declaring, proclaiming, your glory, and your love for us. Father, I pray for all of us here that we don't leave unchanged, Lord. I pray that we are haunted by this so that we can let go of the false gods that we worship in our daily lives. Lord, help us to, to become people who are humbled by this truth that you, Lord, took our place on the cross. Not, you weren't supposed to do it, Lord, but you you, but you did it to display your glory. Lord, all your power in the universe, and you chose that story to display your, who you are. And Lord, we don't get it, but we're amazed by it. Lord, teach us to be humble. Teach us to, to love you above other things, Lord. Show us who you really are. In Jesus' name, we humbly pray. Amen. All right, everyone. Thank you.